What's up, podcast people? This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. This episode is coming to you on August 15th, 2021. I want to follow up on the last podcast where I talked about free open access medical education in the state of social media in anesthesia with a quick discussion on asynchronous learning and the future of anesthesia education. So this isn't a clinical topic, and it's a bit on the nerd side of thinking about how we do education and utilize technology for both impact and profit, but hopefully you're going to enjoy it, especially those of you who are looking to create, to influence the anesthesia community and shape the future of the way we do things. If you haven't caught the last episode on foam and social media in anesthesia, or if it's been a minute since you did, I'm going to give you a quick review because that context is important. Foam is free open access medical education. It includes everything from free apps, podcasts, blogs, social media groups, college courses, digital books, and more. Foam eliminates pay barriers between the learner and the content producer. It greatly enhances the accessibility of information and promotes real-time discussion of emerging trends in evidence-based medicine. Foam is a philosophy more than any specific modality. The spirit of foam is what inspired me to create the podcast from the head of the bed back in 2013 and then Anesthesia Guidebook. More and more podcasts are setting up subscription services where you have to pay for the content. This year, Apple made that easier than ever for producers to do, and you'll likely see some of your favorite shows move in that direction. But this podcast will always be free and open access because I believe it's the best way to share information. In the last episode, I also talked about social media and hit on four main points. One, there's a ton of resources pertaining to anesthesia on social media these days, from educational to pure entertainment. Number two, there's no quality control other than what people using social media promote or filter out. Peer review, bias, conflicts of interest, and whether something is evidence-based or not can all be highly variable in social media because social media doesn't follow the same rules of peer-reviewed professional journals or textbooks. Number three, lots of social media floats around the level of people's opinions, tacit knowledge, and anecdotal experience. While this can be invaluable, it's often where cutting-edge trends, emerging evidence, and new technologies are discussed. In order to truly dig deep and fully understand what's being discussed on social media and how to properly weigh the evidence, you usually have to get off social media. And what I mean by that is that you have to dig deep into the actual literature and textbooks. You need to understand the foundational science, the anatomy, physiology, and pharmacology. You need to read the studies and know how to interpret the data. You may even need to do the studies and publish your data in peer-reviewed journals to actually find answers to interesting questions. And the last point was this. There's a multitude of incentives in the land of social media. Many people are just looking to promote themselves, gain popularity, and possibly tap into some sort of income stream through their blog, podcast, app, or social media account. These interfaces, the social media platforms, are often a storefront window to some sort of service the content producer is selling, or they're trying to tap into advertisement and sponsorship dollars by promoting companies through their content. When you keep an eye out for the incentive behind what people are doing, you can better judge the authenticity of what they're saying. There's nothing wrong with making money from social media accounts or educational resources, but chasing that money as a creator may distort your mission, and the influence of the market may undermine what your favorite content producers are sharing with bias and conflicts of interest. 
It's your job as the podcast listener or Instagram surfer or reader of blogs to tell the difference. It's your job to look for the incentive. Because again, unlike peer-reviewed journals or textbooks or even conference presentations, people on social media don't have to disclose conflicts of interest or point out inherent bias. They can say and do whatever they want. We, as consumers of social media, have to train our eyes to see the incentives and align ourselves with the content producers who are either selling something worth buying or who are contributing to the discussion in authentic ways without the bias of financial incentives. So that was the last podcast. Go check it out if you haven't. And if you want to hear more on foam and social media, you can also check out episode 143 from Beyond the Mask, where I talk about these topics with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. So that's Beyond the Mask podcast, episode 143. Today, I want to pick up where we left off and give you some ideas on asynchronous learning that might change the way we think about the future of anesthesia education. So first, what is asynchronous learning? It's when learners, you and me, engage in content that was developed some other time. It's pretty basic, right? Reading, in fact, is a form of asynchronous learning. So is listening to a podcast or watching a pre-recorded video lecture or cruising through an app to find an answer to what you want to know. Synchronous learning is a live lecture, a class at a university. It's showing up for class or a Zoom meeting or presentation or a live conference. It's syncing up with your professors or a teacher or a presenter at a designated time to learn a designated thing. Synchronized learning has been the foundation of how humans have learned for thousands of years. Yes, books and written information have also been around for a really long time, so you could say that people have also engaged in asynchronous learning for a long time too. But the power of asynchronous learning is a relatively new phenomenon given the development of mobile audio and visual technology in the last 20 years. Remember, the iPod was released in October of 2001 and the iPhone followed in 2007. These devices and their competitors have put the internet in people's pockets and all the potential in the world for better education. So the recent past and certainly the future of anesthesia education will be profoundly shaped by those individuals who harness technology, specifically asynchronous modalities, to create a bit of really good content now that people will watch or listen to and learn from later and in mass, meaning Not the Catholic kind of mass, but in massive numbers. When I create a podcast in my home office with no one around and then hit publish, that audio goes to thousands of devices owned by people who have subscribed. And I thank you for that, by the way. It's an honor to be part of your world and to be part of your day. The ability to leverage work and effort on the front end and share content and stories for relatively cheap on my end and pretty much free on your end has profoundly shaped the way we communicate and learn. And we're just at the start of this process, even though we're almost 20 years in on the widespread use of mobile technology. So let's put asynchronous learning in the context of a couple of other terms, and then I'll bring some clarity around why this matters, and we'll end with some questions to get us thinking about the future. Asynchronous education is not necessarily free and open access, but FOAM is usually a form of asynchronous education. So free open access medical education is usually digital, hence the open access part of the phrase. FOAM could, I suppose, be a live free event, which would you know, be in-person or synchronous and possibly not digital or online. But FOAM is usually some sort of digital content that's made available for everyone for free. Asynchronous content doesn't have to be free. 
An example is AANA's Knowledge Network. You have to pay for access to watch the videos and get the continuing education credit. AANA will occasionally offer free CE credits, but only to their members, so you're still paying for access through membership fees. These pre-recorded lectures are asynchronous, but they're not free or open access. It's also worth noting that digital, e-learning, or virtual does not mean asynchronous. Many digital or virtual meetings are live. COVID-19 led to just about every continuing education conference canceling their in-person meetings in 2020 and 2021. Lots of conference providers went virtual, but not asynchronous. You still had to show up at an exact time to catch a live presentation on a virtual platform. Now, Apex Live conferences are a blend of asynchronous and synchronous learning. The name is a little misleading because most of the conference presentations with Apex Live are not actually live, but they're pre-recorded videos. The live portion is offered on the last day when facilitators lead discussions based on the pre-recorded videos that participants have already watched ahead of time. So we have free open access content and paid content. We have digital and print media, either paid or free, with print media rarely being free because of the high cost of manufacturing and shipping. We have live in-person and live virtual meetings. These are synchronized classes or conferences. And then there's asynchronous education, pre-recorded videos and podcasts, apps, blogs, PDFs, books, and more that can be free open access or paid access. So why does all of this matter? The power of asynchronous learning comes from the ability for content experts to produce something truly informative and engaging once and then make that widely available to learners over a prolonged span of time. It's like a movie. It's made once and then it lives on. But unlike a movie, asynchronous education, especially in healthcare, often needs to get updated, which brings a unique set of challenges that we'll come back to in a minute. But the opportunity, the chance, the potential of asynchronous learning is to harness the best educators and minds to create engaging content that help raise the level of expertise of providers while reducing the upfront workload and cost of producing that content. Think about this. Why does every university need to have an expert in pharmacology on campus to deliver semester-long courses on anesthesia pharmacology year after year? Why does every university need an expert in regional anesthesia or pediatric anesthesia or labor and delivery? Is it possible for the anesthesia community or the wider medical community to develop core science lectures on pharmacology, pathophysiology, and other relevant curriculum and make that widely available to healthcare learners? Yes, of course it is. It's clearly possible. One big barrier is that a lot of professors out there like being professors. They like their jobs. And universities like having professors, particular professors, as part of their brands, as a way to entice anesthesia residents, both physician and nurse anesthesia residents, to their programs. And what I'm getting at is the incentive of money and profits in education. The campaigns that universities put out to try to attract learners and anesthesia residents to their programs operate on a scarcity paradigm. As the university, you need to attract and retain talented professors. If you're a professor or thinking about becoming a professor, part of your calculation is the ability to find a top university and land a tenured position where you have some modicum of job security and a steady salary as a reward for all that education, training, and hard work you put in to becoming a professor 
and developing your courses. But do we have to operate from the scarcity paradigm in the age of digital information? What are the pros and cons and implications of more fully embracing asynchronous learning as part of the initial training and continuing education of healthcare providers? Let's take Nagelhout's pharmacology lectures as an example. Many universities require their anesthesia students to watch his presentations as the core lectures for their pharmacology courses. Nagelhout has 49 hours of free video lectures on YouTube discussing in one to two hour talks each every major area of anesthesia pharmacology. You can listen to these for free anytime you want. These are an example of free open access medical education that is also asynchronous. Now, to get credit for this work towards graduating from an accredited anesthesia training program, you need to be enrolled in that program, meaning you need to be accepted, play the game, pay tuition, and not just watch the free videos that everyone has access to, but also, of course, complete the assignments and importantly, pass the exams on that content. To challenge the university paradigm itself is beyond the scope of this podcast and is not something I think we necessarily need to do. It's complicated, and there are many benefits that should seem obvious for having tomorrow's CRNAs and physician anesthesiologists graduate from accredited programs. So not everything can just be free, open access, asynchronous content. We still need these programs to be vetted in accredited training institutions. But the point I want to make here is how do we harness the power of technology at our fingertips to more effectively train future anesthesiologists and to keep those CRNAs and physicians sharp in their careers? And how do we do this in an affordable manner? There's a few ways I think we can do this. The first is in primary training. Not every university or residency program needs a content expert in every domain of anesthesia, but we do need clinical experts who can facilitate quality conversations and incorporate asynchronous education like pre-recorded videos into meaningful discussions on how to translate that information into clinical practice. Educators should put the effort up front to make a pre-recorded session like a podcast or video or presentation as engaging and effective as possible. The content should be able to be easily updated and edited over time, which is one of the big challenges of the podcast or YouTube channel style of content libraries. Once a show is up, it's hard to go back and tweak that show in a way that effectively reaches those who've already listened to it or watched it. With written digital content like Apex or Prodigy, a particular question or page that's outdated can very easily be updated with little effort or impact to the overall program. One goal of asynchronous content at the university level is to reduce tuition costs. If 10 universities are utilizing Nagelhout's pharmacology videos, which are available for free on YouTube, should the tuition for their farm courses be as high as the universities who are paying content experts to deliver those same talks in person? One more thought on universities. Even if an institution is able to attract and retain relevant content experts, they don't need to give those same live lectures year after year podcasts, videos, and other digital platforms make it possible for them to create the core content once and then free up their time to focus on facilitating discussions and answering questions about the content versus spending all their time giving the lecture over and over and over again. The second area where asynchronous learning can change the future is continuing education. Asynchronous learning has risen as a viable option in continuing education during the pandemic. 
As almost all in-person conferences were canceled during 2020 and 2021, most conference providers switched to virtual platforms. Most providers just took their live conference and put it on Zoom. The Zoom revolution in conferences was, in some ways, a step forward. I was personally able to present at more state associations and national conferences because I could do so for a couple of hours a day from my home or even while on vacation and still spend quality time with my family. If I had to personally travel every time there was a conference to present it, I would, of course, limit the number of conferences I would choose to speak at. I don't want to be gone that long away from home or my family. So while going virtual increased accessibility for both conference presenters and attendees, with presenters able to make it to more conferences and attendees able to participate without the travel cost and in their PJs, everyone still had to show up at the same time. The conferences were mainly still synchronized live events. A few conferences, like Apex Live, have started to harness the power of asynchronous learning. As I described earlier, they utilize pre-recorded talks and then host a one-day live session for Q&A. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think that just because something is asynchronous or pre-recorded, it's better or more effective than a live presentation. Far from it. There's every chance that a pre recorded lecture will actually suck more than a live presentation because most educators bring some sort of flair to the delivery during live sessions when they're in front of a crowd, whether it's a university class or a major conference. But we shouldn't diminish the potential of asynchronous learning just because educators don't fully understand how to make the content relevant and engaging. So asynchronous learning offers the opportunity for content producers to make something high quality at a particular point in time and then maintain access to that content for years to come. This can create the potential for content producers to leverage their time, skills, and effort to maximize the financial return on their services. They make a product once and then sell it for years with minimal time requirements for updates. And it is fascinating to consider the role of profits in the market in primary and continuing education and how asynchronous learning plays into this. There's so many questions we could ask and that we should be asking, like how much should one class A credit be worth? Should a Zoom-based conference cost the same as in-person conferences at a resort? Should conference providers offer the virtual package for far less to someone who wants to log on for a particular talk or a particular day? And then the in-person conference for a premium to those who want to show up at the resort and get to interact with their colleagues in person and enjoy the free coffee and pastries. Should universities charge the same tuition for a pharmacology course that's literally available for free on YouTube as one taught in person from an actual content expert? When it comes to how we do education now and how we can leverage technology to improve the way we do things in the future, there's lots of questions we should be asking. One of the best is simply, why do we do that? It's a question that if you keep asking can either get you into trouble or lead you to create irrevocable change. It's a question I often ask about education and the way we structure our clinical practices. Why do we do that? Why do universities struggle to find and retain content experts when they could harness the power of asynchronous education and share a library of the best resources for cheaper tuition? Why do universities who charge astronomical tuition fees then require their students to purchase third-party board preparation programs. Shouldn't the tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars in tuition be enough to get students successfully over the hurdle of boards? 
Why are continuing education conferences so boring and expensive? The best part is usually the location they're booked in, so that attendees can bear the boring morning sessions and then have their afternoons free to go play. Why do continuing education conferences rarely improve clinical skills or change practice? Why are thousands of Grand Rounds presentations given every year across the United States and only a very select few individuals who happen to show up hear what leading experts are saying? Why does it take on average 17 years for new evidence to find its way into widespread practice? And why do we often put profits ahead of advancing our field and improving access to patient care? These are some of the questions we should be asking. We have the opportunity to redesign the way we do education in the future. Harnessing technology to maximize the benefit of asynchronous learning can reduce costs and likely make education more efficient and effective. Some of you are today's thought leaders and content creators. Some of you will be the content creators, professors, educators, and clinical experts of the future. How will you step into these roles? How will you harness the technology available to us to create more compelling, more interesting, and effective learning tools? These are the questions that will help us redefine what is possible in the way we train anesthesia providers and build better continuing education. So I hope these last couple of podcasts on foam, social media, and asynchronous learning are helpful in getting you thinking about where we are and where we're headed. These concepts shaped the creation of this podcast and will continue to inform what Anesthesia Guidebook is about. Hopefully, they will help you on your journey too. And with that, I'll see you next time. Hey y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.